you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider that at some point in the last year, you made a decision. And maybe you didn't make the decision, but someone made the decision for you. And whether it was your decision or the decision was made for you, the decision was made that you would be at camp this weekend. See, at some point along the way, either you or someone else decided that you would be here this weekend. And there was a time where you had to sign up, and there was a time you had to make a final payment. You might think of it this way. There was a time where you had to pack your bag, and some of you were way ahead of it. Like last weekend, you were already packed. (laughs) And some of you Friday morning were throwing things in a hurried panic into a bag, but there was a time to pack. There was a time to get in a car or a bus or a van and to make your way up here. And there was a time to settle in, and there was a time to come into chapel and a time to come into meals. And everything about this weekend has happened in the course of due time. And the passage we're going to look at tonight in the scriptures is going to talk to us over and over and over again about timing, about the time that you do various things. I want you to hear this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're there, I want you to read along as well. It says this, Solomon speaks, he says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time for love and a time for hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain for their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So the drumbeat of this passage is going to remind you that there is a time for every single thing you do in life. That there's a time to do fun things. There's a time to do silly things. There's a time to embrace people. There's a time to be in conflict with people. There's a right time and place for everything in life. Like, for example, this weekend. Would you go ahead and raise your hand and make some noise if there was a time this weekend where you had yourself a famous Hume Lake milkshake? Anyone? Okay. Very, very good. Let me ask this question. Let me ask if you at any point in time this weekend go ahead and had a snowball fight with anyone here at camp. Right on. Let me ask you this. Was there a time this weekend where you played the world-famous game of broom hockey? Right. And and so here's what's true about camp. There's a time to sleep and a time to wake up, a time to go to the dining hall and a time to come into chapel, a time to play broom hockey and a time to play snowball fight and a time for milkshakes. But then there is also a time in the course of every camp where you are called to make decisions that will impact the rest of your life and the rest of eternity. And right now, tonight, is one of those times. So what I'm going to call you toward tonight is to make the most important decision you could possibly make in your life. Tonight, in this chapel, before you leave, I'm going to invite you to decide what you want to do with God. I told you I grew up in church, and it was a bit of a funky church home, but I was following after Jesus and trying to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, and I was in, middle, middle, I was in elementary school and middle school, and I was part of church, and I knew the Bible stuff, and I knew all sorts of things about God. I could tell you all kinds of things about God, 
But I told you that coming into my eighth grade year, the summer before it, I made a decision not to just know things about God, but to know God himself. And I want you to know there's a difference. You can grow up in church. You can be around church your whole life. You can know Bible information and Bible stories. You can know all of the songs. You can show up at youth group every single time it happens. But that does not mean you know God. It doesn't mean you know God. And tonight, my invitation for some of you is to receive that same God that I received when I was going into my eighth grade year. See, because when I went from knowing things about God to knowing God, it changed my life. And for me, the right time was the summer before eighth grade year. And for some of you, whether you grew up in church or whether you've wanted nothing to do with God your entire life, right now, tonight, is the right time for you to make this decision. I want you to see how it goes on here in verse 12, or verse 11. It says, he, this being God, has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So, so here's what I want you to know uh, about Solomon. Solomon understands that there is a right time for everything, and in fact, a right time to make a decision like I'm calling you to make tonight. And what Solomon also understands is that the decision we're going to talk about tonight has stakes, not just for the next couple weeks or the next couple years or the next couple decades, but for the rest of eternity. You see here it says he has set eternity in the human heart. And this is a fundamental difference between people who believe in God and people who don't believe there's anything in this universe outside of the physical material world. Like if you are an atheist, if you do not believe in God, you fundamentally believe that we die and it is a dreamless sleep forever. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no afterlife, there's nothing other than dreamless sleep for eternity. You're gone. And here's what I want you to know Solomon believes, what I believe, and most importantly, what Jesus himself believes, is that you are no temporal being, meaning you are not just here for however long your life lasts on this earth. Every single one of you is an eternal being. You will spend eternity somewhere. And here's the most important part of this. You will spend eternity somewhere, and you get to pick where that is. You get to choose. And tonight, I'm going to lay before you two options. Tonight, I'm going to lay before you the two choices you have. You see, one of the things I know about being a dad is this. I have a one-year-old little girl, uh, and one-year-olds, um, one-and-a-half-year-olds, really, are notorious uh, for being able to be, like, strong enough and able enough to, like, walk around and get into trouble, but not wise enough to know that it's trouble. So toddlers are famous for running into the street or touching a hot stove or grabbing knives. My daughter has learned that if she pushes one of our kitchen chairs into the kitchen, she can stand on it and get things on the counter, which isn't such a big deal when there's a snack on a counter, but there is such a big deal when we've seen the moments where she's reaching for the knife block. And so we see those moments, and we see what my daughter is doing, and here's what you know and I know, that I would be a terrible dad if my little one-year-old was reaching for a knife block and I was like, I just really don't want to get in her way. I don't want to bother her. I don't want to be judgmental toward her or anything like that. I don't want her to not like me, so I'll just let her experiment with the knives, see if it's kind of fun for her. I would be a terrible father if I did not step in and warn my one-year-old about the danger that she is not yet aware of. And what I want you to know is this. I would be a terrible pastor if I did not stand before you and tell you, and we are speaking about eternity, about the incredible danger you are in if you spend your entire life running from the creator of the universe, that if you do not turn back to God, there is a terrible fate that awaits you, and the word the Bible uses for that fate is the word hell. Hell is not a joke. It's not a silly place. It's not the place you go to have fun and drink beer and play cards and hang out with the devil. It is eternal, 
It is separation from God. It is judgment from God. It is painful. And it is not a place anyone should want to go. So I want you to know this about hell. I want you to know hell isn't something I made up. can't tell you how many times I've preached on hell and someone comes to me angry. They say, are you really telling me that just because I don't follow your Jesus, I don't get to go to heaven? I have to go to hell? My answer is this. I'm not telling you anything. This isn't Brian Howard's opinion. This isn't something I came up with. This is something I invented backstage and came out here to tell you about. This is something Jesus said. If you've got a problem with the idea of hell, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with Jesus. Jesus teaches that there is one way to heaven, one way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets to the Father but through him. So number one is, Jesus is the one you have a problem with. And number two, so this conversation I had with this guy years ago, he said, well, why can't I just go to heaven? I'm a good person. Why do I have to believe in your Jesus? And here's what I told him. Heaven is not primarily about you getting away from hell. Heaven is primarily about the presence of God and unending communion with him forevermore. Right at the center of heaven is God, and we get to go spend eternity with him. So my question to him and my question to some of you is, why would you want to go to heaven for eternity with God if you want nothing to do with him now? See, that's what I want you to know. Hell is not just like, oh, God doesn't like you, so you go there, and God likes you, so you go to heaven. No, no, no. Heaven is fundamentally about this question. Do you want God or not? Because many people in their life look to God and say, God, forget you. I'm going in my own direction. I'm doing my own thing, but then still think they want to go to heaven. No, heaven is not about how do you just get a nice ending rather than a bad one. And hell is not about a bad ending rather than a good one. The fundamental question is this. Do you want to spend eternity with God? So, so listen to me. Hell is real. Hell is not a joke. Hell is separation from God. It is judgment for sin. It is eternal. But here is the most important thing you need to know about hell. Every eye in the room on me right now. The most important thing you need to know about hell is that nobody has to go there. Nobody has to go there. You see, Jesus himself understood that you are an eternal being. That you do not just die and go away into a dreamless sleep, but you will live on for all of eternity. He understood that deeply. And what he extends to the people who follow him and trust him is eternal life. I want you to see what may be the most famous Bible verse in all of scripture. I want you to see this. I'll put it on screen. John chapter 3 verse 16 says these words. This is Jesus speaking. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So what Jesus understands is this, you are an eternal being. You will spend eternity somewhere. That if you run from God and do not turn back to him, if you continue on in your sin and rebellion against God, you will spend eternity in a place called hell, separated from God. And yet what Jesus says is there is a way for you to spend eternity not separated from God, not judged from God, but in God's presence with eternal life, in fellowship with the Father. He says, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want you to see the first words up here. It says, for God so loved the world. So I want you to understand this, that despite the fact that we looked at God and said, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, I'm going my own way, I know better, I'm going my own direction. You know what God's posture toward you still is? It's one of love. It's one of compassion. It's one of grace. It's one of mercy. God didn't write you off. He didn't blow you off. He didn't say, I want nothing to do with you. God looks at you, and all of the ways you have insulted him, all of the ways you've sinned against him, all of the ways you've robbed him of his glory and said, I know better. I'm doing my own thing, and he wants you back. Like, I want you to think of it this way. So I want you to know one of the most painful things in my life right now. I have three brothers. 
I have an older brother named Kevin, who I have a great relationship with. He lives in Orange County. He's a doctor. Him and I have a great friendship. I have a younger brother named Ben. And he and I have a great relationship. He lives real close to us. He's over at my house all the time. I love my brother Ben. But I have a third brother, and his name's Stephen. And here's what I want you to know about Stephen. I grew up with Stephen. I love Stephen. I care about Stephen. But I haven't spoken to Stephen in nearly seven years. I haven't seen him in nearly seven years. Stephen is estranged from our family. He made some choices a long time ago that started leading him down a road that was completely contrary to my family. We've asked for him back. We want him back. We've reached out to him. We've prayed for him. We've done everything we can that he would come back. But the words he has said to my parents have been so vicious, so foul, so harsh, so final, that we're not sure when, if ever, we will regain a relationship with my brother, Stephen. This summer, my family was hanging out together in a family reunion, and we were talking to my dad. And we said, Dad, what would you do if right now Stephen knocked on the door? With all that he's said about you, all the horrible things he's done, all the ways he's insulted you, all the ways he's done terrible things, what would you do if your third to youngest son, your third child, knocked on the door? What would you do, Dad? You want to know my father's answer? He says, if that son of mine knocked on the door and I opened the door for him, I would look him straight in the face, I would hug him, and I would tell him, welcome home. Because that's the love of a father. And I want you to know that that's the love of God for you. I want you to know that whatever you have done and wherever you have been, whatever ways you have insulted God, rebelled against him, sinned, whatever you've done before camp, listen, whatever you've done at camp, the God of the universe says, if you come back home, you knock on my door, his arms are open wide and he says, welcome home. This is what it means when it says God so loved the world. God's not standing cross-armed, angry as a father, wanting you to make it up to him. God's with an open arm. You may have been running from God your whole life, but I promise you this, tonight if you would stop running and turn around, you would recognize that he's never stopped chasing after you. God loves my brother Stephen. God loves you. And just like my father would welcome him into his home, the father would do the same for you. It says that God so loves the world. But it goes further. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. Like in other words, the father wants you back so bad that he didn't just sit up in heaven hoping that someday you'd come back to him. God didn't just go, well, you left me so you can come back here. I'll wait until you're ready to come back to me. God says, no, 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 I'm going to chase you down and I'm going to chase you down and I'm going to offer you the way for you to get back to me. See, the salvation we experience in God, this reconciliation we have with the Father where he welcomes us home happens because of a gift that we are given. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. You don't try hard enough. Tonight I'm not saying, well, if you have sinned this much, you need to make up for it this much to get to God. I'm not saying you've done 10 bad things. Now you need to do 10 good things to get back to God. It is a gift. It is a gift that God has given through his son, Jesus. And the entire debt that you owe God for rebelling against him, God says, I want to pay that debt so that you will never have to. The day my wife and I got married, we stayed in a hotel in town. And then the next morning got up and went down to the airport uh, to go on our honeymoon out to Maui. And now we went to the airport a couple hours early and we had some time to kill. So we went to a restaurant and we got into the restaurant. And as we're checking in at the little front desk counter thing, um, I'm being obnoxious. Because once you get married, it's the coolest thing. You get to use a word you've never used before. I used to call her my girlfriend, then she was my fiance, now she's my wife. 
I just thought that was the coolest thing. So every time I would be like, hey, could I get a table for my wife and I? And they're like, absolutely, over here. We'd sit down. She'd be like, what can you have? I'm like, I'll have a, a, a water, and my wife will have a water. It's just super obnoxious, right? Make sure everyone here in this restaurant knows that I've just gotten married to this beautiful woman. I'm so excited about this, so I'm making a big deal about getting married. And then here's what happens. It's time for us to get to our gate, head on the flight. And, and so we wave down the waitress and we say, hey, can we get our, our check, please? So she comes by, she comes back, she looks a little confused, and then she walks up to our table and says, hey, um, someone in the restaurant heard that you had just gotten married, and they were really excited for you, and they paid your bill. They paid it. I was like, um, what? Uh, um, what? She goes, I'm not going to tell you who, but someone in the restaurant was really excited for you and paid your bill. I said, so, so what do I do? She goes, you just get up and leave. I was like, wait, what? Because I'm just like, I'm not used to this. I think I have to pay for it. I'm supposed to pay for it. I eat the meal. I'm supposed to pay for it. She says, no, no, you get up and leave. And so in that moment, I had a choice. I could like pull out my wallet and be like, no, 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 I'm going to pay it. But here's the problem. It was already paid. The deal was already done. There was nothing to pay for. I could pretend that I was paying for it, but that's not me paying for anything. You know what the only thing I was able to do in that moment was? Stand up, walk away, live the rest of my life in gratitude. That's what I was able to do with that gift. And it's the same thing with the gospel. This good news of Jesus, this offer of salvation is a gift. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You can't accumulate enough good works. God says, I've already paid for it. And the only thing you do is receive it with joy and live the rest of your life in gratitude. That's what you are called to do with this gift of Jesus. Jesus is sent into the world to pay your bill of sin. See, when you turned from God and said, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, going in my own direction, you accumulated a debt. And Jesus came into this world to pay your debt. And do you know where he paid it? He paid it on the cross. See, what I want you to understand is that right at the center of the story of Jesus is the story not of a victorious champion who comes in and rules the earth, but rather of a savior who steps into this world to suffer and die on a cross for your sins and your salvation to pay the debt you owed God as a love gift to you because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. See, here's what happened to Jesus. Jesus and his 12 disciples do a three-year ministry where they're healing people, where they're preaching the kingdom of God, where they're proclaiming a new relationship, a new covenant between God and human beings. But there are people who don't like Jesus for this, and so they arrest him. They put him on a false trial and put false charges against him. They mock him and belittle him. They lie about him. They spit at him. They beat him and they throw him into prison for the night and then they decide they're gonna flog him. The flogging, the whipping of Jesus was not some simple, small thing. It wasn't a whip like you see in a Western movie. What they would do is they would tie Jesus with his knees on the ground around a pole. And they would tie his arms around the pole. And they would strip him of all of his clothes. He was there naked and embarrassed and ashamed. And then they would take a whip. And that whip was made of leather, and the end of that whip, it would have bone and rock and shards of glass. And they would use that whip to beat and lash Jesus. Sometimes ancient historians told us the whip would come around the rib cage and actually rip open the rib cage so that the suffering would be so great. The pieces would get in there and just claw out the skin and break bones. Some people never even survive this scourging, but Jesus does. And then they stand Jesus up. He's condemned to death. He's exhausted. He hasn't slept all night. He's dehydrated in the Middle Eastern sun. They make him carry the crossbar of his cross up a hill to a place called the Skull, Golgotha. He's so exhausted he falls and he can't even do it. They bring that same Jesus up onto that hill and they lay him down on a cross, a beam that's vertical, a beam that is horizontal. 
The first thing they would do is stretch out his hands. Sometimes they would use ropes so the shoulder would actually pop out. They would drive a railroad spike through his wrist so that he would stay hanging on the cross and drive a similar stake through his feet so he would stay there. Jesus hangs on the cross, and you might think it's just from loss of blood that you die, but not so. When you're hanging on a cross, what happens is you're not able to breathe. Your lungs begin to fill with fluid. And the only relief from that fluid is for you to push up on the nails for one deep breath and then let it out. And over time, Jesus' body fatigues. Over time, he's exhausted. Over time, he's losing blood. He's losing oxygen, and he's losing his life. That's when Jesus will look at those who are crucifying and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's when Jesus will cry out to God in heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his final breath, he will cry out the word in Greek, to die. It is finished. It is done. Payment accepted. Salvation complete. See, Jesus dies and suffers on the cross in ways that you and I could not possibly imagine. The word excruciating, when we say this excruciating pain, comes from the word crucifixion. It comes from the idea of crucifixions. The Romans perfected the physical pain they could inflict on Jesus' body. But you know what the wild thing is? The most painful part of Jesus' day, when he hung on that cross, was not the physical pain in his body. Because the scriptures tell us something else is happening in that moment. The scriptures say that Jesus himself took our, our sins in his body as he was hanging on the cross. Like in other words, what was happening on the cross physically was not even close to what was happening on the cross spiritually. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. It's like Jesus has a cup of wrath that is due to you and you and me and you and all of us. And instead of being poured out upon Brian Howard, Jesus drinks the wrath of God. He drinks the punishment for my sin. He is aching. He is suffering on the cross more than any sinner ever will in hell. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf because that's what love does. Love absorbs the pain of the other so they won't have to experience it. Like I remember when my daughter was one years old. This is my oldest daughter, Grace. She was playing on a playground. Um, and, and she was just trying to come down the stairs one time, and she fell and tripped, and she cut her chin open. She got a big old gash underneath her chin, and immediately when we saw it, we knew we had to get her to the hospital. So we drive over to the hospital, we bring her in, and immediately the doctors say, we're going to need to do stitches. And so what happens, I'll never forget this, and your parents might have something like this, where they'll never forget this. They said only one parent can come in, and so her, you know, my wife, her mom, goes in with her, and I remember standing there a few feet away, just watching in on this. And what they have to do is they have to numb her chin, and then they have to go in with the needles. And there are certain sounds I'll never forget in my life, and that was one of them. One of those sounds was my daughter in that moment shrieking in pain from this gash on her chin as they're sewing it up with a needle. And I remember in that moment as a dad saying, I would do anything to take that pain from her right now. If I could swap places with her and I could take the pain right now, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would do it in an instant. This is my little girl, and I don't want this for her. I want to take the pain. And that is the exact thing Jesus did for you on the cross. He said, I would do anything to take the wrath that you deserve on your behalf. I would do anything to absorb that into my body. And that is what Jesus did on the cross you owed a debt you could not pay to God, so Jesus is sent into this world to pay that debt on your behalf. And you know what this means, that Jesus is our substitute who stands in our place? It means that when you sin, you don't have to beat yourself up anymore. Jesus already got beat up on the cross so that when you sin, you don't have to do that. Jesus already paid for it. It means that when you feel shame for your sin, you don't have to walk in shame anymore because Jesus was shamed for you on the cross. 
It means that when you feel far from God because of your sin, you don't have to feel that anymore. Because Jesus said that I have been cut off. Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced alienation on your behalf. And because Jesus did that, he went into the grave and rose victoriously three days later, showing that he had conquered sin and death and hell, and that the payment, the gift of your salvation was available to you. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners, rose from the dead for our salvation. It is a gift that God holds out to you, and he has put eternity in your heart and a choice before you tonight. You can spend eternity apart from God, continuing in your sin, or tonight you can plant your foot in the ground, repent and turn from your sin, and receive this gift of eternal life that Jesus offers you. I want you to see the end of this verse here. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then it says that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Like, notice what it doesn't say here. Notice it doesn't say he sent his one and only son that whoever goes to church enough will have eternal life. It doesn't say he sent his one and only son that, that whoever tries really hard not to sin or whoever never stumbles in their sin or, or whoever never does anything bad will have eternal life. It doesn't say anyone who's perfect will have eternal life. It says whoever believes in him. And the question tonight is simple. How do we believe in Jesus? What does it take for us to believe? And the answer is simply this. We call upon his name. We cry out to him. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. We don't work toward it. We call upon the name of a God who can rescue and save us. It's like this. So a few years ago in my backyard, we have a little hot tub, and my kids loved being in the hot tub. It wasn't very deep, but they were small, and so we were in there with us, and they're walking along the sides of it, you know, knee, like knee deep in the water. But then one time, one of them trips and falls, and they're in the middle of the hot tub. And they're not tall enough to make it out of the hot tub on their own, and so they're like drowning in the water. Now I'm sitting right there, and they're under the water. And as a dad, I know what's happening right now. I know I've got to move quick. So I reach my arms down and I grab them up out of the water. Now, if years from now they told some story of like, I was drowning in the hot tub, but I saved myself. I rescued myself. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps in that hot tub. I would say, no, you most certainly didn't. I saved you, not you. It was 100% me, not you. That's how salvation works. You cry out to God. He says, I'll do all the work. Let me rescue you. Let me save you. So tonight... Here's the invitation for you. Here's the invitation I want you to receive. I want you to receive the invitation that comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 13. There's a sentence that goes all through the scriptures. And you'll see it over and over and over again. And here's that sentence. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This sentence right here on the screen might just change your life and it might just change your eternity the first word I want you to see here is the word everyone. The word everyone means everyone, all people. No one is excluded from this. You say, I didn't grow up in church, or I've done bad things. I did bad things here at camp. Can God really save me if I did something here at camp? Can God really save me for the things I've done? And the answer is, if you are included in everyone, then this promise is for you. This promise is for you if you're a good Christian. It's for you if you're a terrible Christian. It's for you if you've been far from God. It's for you if you've grown up in church. This promise is for everyone. It says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, to call out to someone, to cry out to them, to say I need help, to call them, is to acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. 
It's like this, if you're doing something for a class and you're doing some homework and you can't figure out a math problem and you call your friend and you're like, listen, I'm totally lost on this problem. What do I do here? When you call out to them, it's an acknowledgement that you can't do this on your own. It's the same thing with God. When you call upon the name of the Lord, it's an acknowledgement. God, I have fallen short. I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. I cannot do this on my own. I need you to rescue me. I need you to save me. This is the acknowledgement, what happens when we call upon the name of the Lord. See, sometimes people think that they're excluded from God because they've done too many bad things. They've sinned too much. They've gone too far. And here's what I want you to know. There is only one type of person that God will not save. Only one. The only type of person that God will not save is the person who is too proud to ask. The only type of person God will not save is the person who doesn't think they need saving. It is the person who is too proud to ask that God would rescue and save them from their sin. See, the person who has fallen so deep in their sins but cries out to God, in that moment, a pardon receives from God. In that moment, forgiveness is offered to them. They are made a child of God and given a home with him in eternity in heaven forevermore. It says everyone who calls. Everyone who calls on who? The name of the Lord. Now, earlier this weekend, I told you that when you see the Lord in your Bible, it's the name Yahweh. In the Hebrew language, when you see L capitalized, it's the word Yahweh. But in the New Testament, it's actually written in a Greek language. And in the Greek language, that word Lord is the Greek word kurios. Say that with me. Kurios. Kurios. Kurios doesn't just mean God. It doesn't just mean Lord like we would kind of pray to God with that name. Kurios means master. Kurios means king. Kurios means we call upon the one who's in charge. Listen, to call upon the name of the Lord is not just to say, God, I don't want to go to hell. I'd like to go to heaven, but I'm going to live my life on my own terms. That's not how this works. To declare that Jesus is Lord and to call upon his name is to recognize his sovereignty and his lordship and his rulership over your life. In other words, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you are declaring that Jesus calls the shots now. He's in charge of your life. He runs the show now. You cannot call upon the name of the Lord and then just decide to do your own thing. To call upon the name of the Lord is to say he's in charge. It's like this, all growing up, I'd heard pastors or preachers saying this, and, and they would say things like this, that I'm calling you tonight to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I'm not here to just knock other pastors or preachers, but I just want to be abundantly clear tonight. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. Jesus already is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. He is ruling and reigning over all things. And one day, every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess he is Lord. Every eye will see him for who he is. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. You confess that he already is. You acknowledge that he already is. You submit your life to King Jesus because he is already the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all things. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you are recognizing Jesus is already in charge and I'm gonna live my life like that's true. And here's the promise. It says that everyone, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, not that they might be saved or could be saved, or if they call upon the name of the Lord and then they behave themselves really well will be saved. It says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise. You'll be saved, forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God, adopted into his family, justified before the heavenly judge of the universe, made a child of God, and given a home in heaven forevermore. 
Solomon tells us something profound and important about our lives, that God has sent eternity in our hearts. And everyone in this room will spend eternity somewhere. And the invitation for you tonight is that you would spend eternity with the God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the invitation for you. And the way you respond is that everyone, 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 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's what we're going to do all across this room. We're going to go ahead and bow our heads right now and close our eyes. And I'm going to give this invitation, this opportunity for you to respond to the good news of the gospel. This opportunity for you to respond to Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose from the dead for you and your salvation. I ask everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads for a reason. And that's because of this. The scriptures say that it is appointed for everyone to die once and then to stand in judgment. In other words, there will come a day where you die and you stand before God in judgment and the person sitting to your left right now and the person sitting to your right right now won't be there. Your youth pastor won't be there. Your cabin leader won't be there. Your mom and dad won't be there. This is a decision you and you alone can make. And so tonight your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed because you need to do some business with God. Maybe you've been pretending to be a Christian. You've got everyone fooled. Maybe you grew up in church, but you've just never made this decision for yourself. Or maybe you got invited this weekend, thought you wanted nothing to do with God, but there is a God who is knocking on the door of your heart. And tonight's the night you're going to open that door. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray right now. And as I pray, if tonight's the night you are going to call upon the name of the Lord for the first time, crying out to him, asking that he would save you, I'm going to ask you to pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. Just pray quietly, silently in your heart and mind. Here's the invitation. If tonight's your night, would you just pray? Father in heaven, I confess that you created me. You created all things. And God, tonight I admit and I confess that I have turned my back on you, that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory, and that I have done things my own way. But tonight, God, I repent of my sin. I turn to Jesus. And tonight, I call upon the name of the Lord. God, I give everything I know of me to everything I know of you. And I ask tonight that you would save me, that you would forgive my sin, make me your child, and give me a home in heaven forevermore. And tonight, if you prayed that prayer and you're calling on the name of the Lord, that you might be saved, I'm gonna count to three. And on three, I just want you to open your eyes and look straight at me. One, two, three. All across this room. Keep looking at me. If you still need to open your eyes right now, but you're just hardening your heart, I just want to invite you to still do that. If you're looking at me right now and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus before, maybe you've been baptized, you, you have really been following Jesus and you've done this a bunch of times, this doesn't have to be your moment. You can close your eyes if you've done this a bunch of times before. God knows you, God loves you, God saved you. But if tonight's the night you're saying, you know what, no. I'm going from knowing things about God to knowing God himself. Keep your eyes straight open and look at me. I have two questions for you. If you're looking at me right now and you can answer by nodding your head yes, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, paying the price for your salvation? If so, nod your head yes. And if not, you can close your eyes. I'm not trying to make a hypocrite of anyone. Second question, do you believe that Jesus Christ, do you confess that Jesus Christ 
is the resurrected king of the universe and the Lord of your life. Like he's in charge now. If so, nod your head yes. And again, if not, you can close your eyes. I don't want to force anyone into this. Here's what the scriptures say. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which means this promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord isn't just true for you someday, it's true for you right now. In this moment, you have gone from death to life, from unforgiven to forgiven, from gone from God to reconciled to him. And that is a beautiful and a good thing. You have done a true thing tonight. Maybe the most important thing you'll ever do. But that's not something you just do on your own. It's something you do in the context of a church and of a people who love you. And so if you're looking at me right now, on three, I'm going to ask you to do something brave. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet so we can acknowledge you, so we can celebrate you, and so we can mark this moment as the moment that you called upon the name of the Lord. I'm standing here telling you that when I was going into eighth grade, I called upon the name of the Lord. It changed my whole life. And if you're saying that same thing tonight, stand with me on three. One, two, three, stand to your feet. The rest of us, let's celebrate what God's doing in this house. Keep standing, keep standing. Let me take one moment to ask a question and keep standing. Sometimes there's someone who knew they needed to stand, but their heart was resisting. And is there anyone else who needs to stand in this room right now and say, tonight's the night I'm calling on the name of the Lord. God save me, God rescue me, tonight's the night. Anyone else who needs to stand right now? Awesome, awesome. Those standing, here's the truth about you. God created you, God knows you, God loves you. God sent his son Jesus into this world for this moment, just right now. This is the day of the Lord's salvation. This is the time he has called you toward. He has brought all of your life to this moment that you might spend eternity with him in a relationship that is bought by the precious blood of Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Nothing can change that, nothing can take it from you. Your salvation is secure in Jesus. We get to sing, we get to rejoice, we get to celebrate because those who have been lost are now found. Those who are gone are now back home and those who are running from God have now embraced him in his arms so I invite everyone in this room to make some noise stand to your feet stand to your feet and we are going to sing we are going to celebrate we are going to worship because God is good and Jesus saves and this is the day of the Lord's salvation Father in heaven thank you that you save thank you for your grace thank you for your mercy thank you above all for Jesus it's in his mighty name we pray and all God's people said